When you're making a show like this one, problems sometimes come up. One of them is, how do you handle it when your relatively narrow subject of investigation, in our case the still massive topic of film as it's developing across the entire globe, slams into one of the most important events in human history? I mean, how are you supposed to handle that? How much context, time, attention do you give something like the First World War? This isn't a war history show. We can't go over the history of the conflict itself in detail, but I am flabbergasted about how important this brutal war is in understanding cinema. You could spend an entire lifetime trying to understand how just one of its major effects affects the history of film. Take the formation of the Soviet Union, for example. One of the most obvious outcomes of the war and one of the most important happenings in world history. The Soviets are going to have what we might call an outsized impact on film history, so we've got to cover what led to that somehow, right? Do I do that while talking about the war? Or do I do that while talking about Soviet film? And that's just one of the questions. What about how the fall of the Ottoman Empire affects film history? Or the complete restructuring of Central Europe? Or increased Japanese imperial expansion across the Pacific? Or the United States reaching superpower status on the world stage? Or the foundations of the Second World War being laid, which is also important to understand film history? And the small matter of over 15 million people being killed and 22 million more people being wounded as a direct result of combat. You'd better believe that all of that has some kind of effect on the kinds of motion pictures people are making and watching. This is so much bigger than I can even begin to know how to talk about, but we have to start somewhere. We have to try. We've got to try because Europe before the war is producing movies that are epics, Bible stories, romances, and adaptations of grand stage plays, film to art, and Max Linder comedies. That's about to change. The people who are lucky enough to come back from the war came back after seeing their friends exploded beside them after gunning down enemy soldiers by the hundreds after surviving gas attacks, after going days without food or sleep while living every moment on a knife's edge of death, after living among corpses and filth in the mud for months at a time, after losing arms and legs and jaws to machine gun fire. These people were changed by this. The movies changed with them. By the war's end, the vampires would stalk the streets of Paris, and their gruesome violence would lay the foundation for the crime film genre. 
A few years later, an army of dead soldiers would rise from their graves to accuse the society that sent them to their end by the millions. German filmmakers would bring to life blood-sucking devils, fiendish doctors, and child murderers in an irreverent and disorienting style designed to express more than it told. In the decades that followed, as many of these filmmakers fled Europe to the United States, they would bring their practiced darkness with them, beginning a film tradition that the French would eventually call noir. We will get to all that. That's telling the story of the screen. But we can't talk about any of it without dealing with this first. The war that reshaped the 20th century is about to reshape its greatest art form. This is the 32nd episode of the history of film. My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. To see how the war changed everything, let's look at the most developed and prominent film industry in Europe before the war, France, and see what we can learn about the status quo antebellum of European film as a baseline for our war discussion. I've tried a few different ways to get at this, and the best way that I can think of is with a little equation. It goes like this. Peace at home, plus imperial expansion, plus industrial might, equals enormous wealth and power. All of these things factored into the cultural achievements that so many Europeans were proud of at the time, and would eventually become reasons why the war would be, at the time, the most terrible in human history. These reasons were reflected in European film before the first shots of war were fired. First, peace at home. Since the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, Europe had been relatively at peace for about a century. Yes, I know there were major conflicts and huge revolutions and its own fair share of wars, but I think it's fair to say that at least not all European powers had been at war with each other since they had worked together to end Napoleon's imperial ambitions to personally own the entire continent. Obviously, peace can do wonders for prosperity, as people are able to work to make things instead of destroy them. And the massive amounts of spending that would go to paying soldiers can instead be used to make laborers more capable and productive. Throughout the century, education increased, literacy rose, Populations grew across Europe, and productivity increased with it. The next part of our equation is imperial expansion, and boy was there a lot of that going on. Many European nations, along with my own country, the United States, took advantage of extended periods of peace at home to project their power outside of their borders, taking over other places by force. This was manifest in lots of different ways, 
but the most common way was to go to places that were not prepared to defend against European weapons technology and shoot the people there until the survivors were forced to submit to the yoke of whatever empire was doing the shooting. This is what we now call colonialism or imperialism. After this initial conquest, resources would be extracted from imperial holdings. Human beings under imperial control would be forced to labor, often under extremely brutal conditions, to extract wealth and resources from their homelands. Those resources would then be shipped back to Europe or North America. This made colonizing countries resource-rich to a degree that was unimaginable before the practice of colonialism became widespread. Powerful European countries, and the United States, now had what seemed like an unlimited supply of resources and wealth flooding into their heartland. Those are the wealth and resources that European moguls and governments would use to fuel their last major factor, industrialization. The 19th century saw a huge spike in industry, mass production, and mechanization. This allowed raw materials brought in from colonial holdings to be made into cheap, mass-produced goods at unparalleled speed. This had many knock-on effects. Mass-produced goods would be produced in an ever-increasing number of huge factories, which, in turn, needed lots of people to operate them. This drew ever more people from the countryside into large population centers like London, Paris, or Hamburg. All of these people would make and purchase literal tons of just about everything you could imagine. Clothes, clocks, guns, toys, books, carriages, dyes, bricks, and more. Among the products produced were increasingly complex parts that could be themselves used to make ever more powerful machines to produce even more increasingly complex parts. As you can see from this short description, these factors supported and fed into each other. Factories were able to produce more and better guns that could be used to force more colonized people to extract more wealth from their homes and send it back to colonizing nations. These materials could be used to make even more stuff, increasing demand for raw materials again. Peace in Europe meant that Britain, France, Germany, Italy, the United States, Belgium, Japan, and lots of other countries could focus their attention on conquering more places to keep the resources coming in. Combine these factors, empire, peace, industrialization, and what you get is a society more technologically advanced and materially prosperous than the world had ever seen. These factors which defined pre-war Europe would lead to the First World War being the most horrifying conflict yet seen in human history. They are also the petri dish that film grew in. Cinema could not have begun without the precision machine-made parts that drive the innumerable delicate and precise gears of cameras and projectors. Film itself, as we perceive it, is defined by its mass reproducibility. Have you ever stopped to wonder that human beings in Chile and Japan can see the same movie, the same work of art? 
it's remarkable. Movie theaters, just like factories, relied on hundreds of urban workers with few options to make their businesses run. We must recognize that these two, cinema and the First World War, have the same parents. They are world-changing gods ripped from the belly of the same Uranus. We haven't paid specific attention to it until now, but we've seen that cinema, even at its earliest, reflects this. Prosperity glitters in the background of all pre-war European film that we've talked about on this show. How could it not? Motion pictures are literally a record of the light that was bouncing off of these societies. Let's look back at some of the very first films we examined. The Lumiere films. Let's look again at the train arrives at the station. While its steam locomotive and old-fashioned, well, fashion, make it look a bit quaint by modern standards, just take a second and think about what we are really being shown in movies like this one. What glitters between their silver frames. We are watching a group of middle-class people getting on and off a mechanized, carbon-powered transit system like it's no big deal. Because it wasn't a big deal. When we talk about this 1896 movie, we talk about the camera being a shocking new invention. But we don't think of the amount of resources required to build a railway. We're not supposed to. We take for granted that France had those resources. We don't marvel that there were enough people who could afford to ride a train to make it a worthwhile venture for French government and private business. And look at those people. They're all dressed so smartly, and they are so polite and seemingly happy. What we're seeing here in The Train Arrives at the Station isn't just one of the first great examples of mise-en-scene, or one of the best deep-focus shots in film history. We're seeing a literal projection of French prosperity, a statement of the French civilization, of their much-vaunted ingenuity and nobility, arriving in our minds at the same time a big black train comes to rest at its stop. Another good example, workers leaving the Lumiere factory. That is literally a movie of hundreds of workers walking out of a factory. Industrialization in full bloom. And in this case, obviously inseparable from the people who are actually making the movies because it's their factory. Ugh, and what labor power. The film suggests that every man, woman, coach, and dog in France are mobilized in amazing feats of production. More than mere peace or prosperity, this movie shows, from the very beginning, a world where France's industrial capacity and its nascent motion picture industry are in lockstep. As for France's colonial power, we see it most clearly in The Parade of the Ostriches in which African animals, ostriches, elephants, and camels, 
are paraded throughout Paris's botanical gardens for the entertainment of people watching. This, of course, smacks of empire. It's a film that not only gives its audience the pleasure of seeing animal movement, still one of the great attractions of the moving picture, but it is also an unspoken assertion that France is fully capable of extracting what is unique, powerful, beautiful, and valuable from its colonial holdings in Africa and bring them to the homeland for the benefit, even the mere pleasure, of its citizenry. You can look back at most of these movies and see all of this at play. It's the destruction of walls, the gliding movements of trains, the antics of well-fed babies, tours of exotic locations. Empire, industry, prosperity, the product of European wealth, is displayed in celluloid and silver. Film is an industrial manifesto of European civilization. But maybe historical and literary analysis doesn't quite do it for you. How about some cold hard numbers? It will be worth our while to go all the way back to episode 9 and look at just how well old Charles Pathé did before the whole continent went to hell. In the first years of the French film industry, Pathé might as well be named Napoleon. His product dominated the world cinema market. Just take a look at these production numbers. In 1907, Pathé factories were turning out 40,000 feet of film stock per day, six new movies a week, and 250 motion picture cameras per month, all of which would double by 1909. All of these movies would be exhibited in Pathéon theaters across France, a guaranteed market for his films. I don't have access to old Charles's receipts, but I could only assume that ticket sales practically printed money. As for Pathé's overseas distribution empire, I only have access to data for one country, go figure, the United States. Here, Pathé produced between one-third and one-half of all movies being shown in American theaters in 1907. Pathé had his business tentacles in and around the entire motion picture industry of the world, so if those numbers were reflected in other regions, which I suspect they might have been, his success is almost frightening. It was truly the most monstrous film business ever to be created, and Pathé isn't even the entire French film industry. Remember, Gaumont is here too, and while nowhere near Pathé, was still doing quite well, producing successful films by the likes of Alice Guy and then Louis Fouillade. Even Georges Méliès was still kicking around, though by 1914, the year of Kiberia and Birth of a Nation, his stage styles were looking a bit outmoded, but I digress. In short, the French film business was booming, at home and abroad. Even with the maturation of American film production, French films still made up an impressive 10% of all movies being shown on American screens in 1913. Surely nothing could happen to topple a giant of such lofty heights. In The Boy and the Heron, directed by Hayao Miyazaki, there's a wizard who stacks stones to magically create the world. ¶¶ 
As he adds more and more stones, the structure becomes more complex and intricate, more likely every day to crumble and destroy itself if its delicate balance is disturbed in any way. If the slightest force upsets it, the world will crumble to pieces. In Boy and the Heron, this is a metaphor for Japanese society as it existed before World War II, but in many ways this image is even more evocative of Europe before the First World War. Over decades, European continental politics were tenuously balanced in a complex structure that was made to fail. Russia agrees to aid France in case of war, at a stone. The German Empire signs an agreement to support Austria-Hungary, put a stone on the other side to balance it out. France signs a treaty with Great Britain, stack another stone, and on and on. Stones outward, upward, making a teetering political balance that needed only a gentle push to demolish all of Europe its tumbling pieces killing millions as they fell. Well, there was a push. In the summer of 1914, there was an assassination, then an ultimatum, then a declaration. One empire invaded a country to get to a third country, and out of balance, everything fell. The Great War had begun. Uncountable hosts would make a mountain of corpses before it ended. of what made cinema possible. Everything we've talked about for the last 32 episodes was now making something quite different. The chemical advances that would lead to celluloid and silver nitrate images also lead to toxic gases that suffocated anyone they touched. The factories that produced gears and wheels for cameras also made gears and wheels that made weapons ever more accurate and deadly. Machine guns clicked like motion picture projectors, etching darkness into the eyes of thousands at a time. The nations of Europe would send millions of men into combat, mobilizing what otherwise would have been the heart of their labor force. They diverted virtually their entire industrial and agricultural power into feeding and arming soldiers. This affected every aspect of European life, including European filmmaking, which, of course, grinds to a halt. This leads to one of the most important historical shifts in early film history. As production studios were converted into impromptu hospitals, as factories churned out grenades instead of celluloid, as actors and filmmakers left their posts to shoot guns instead of movies, something happened. While all of the major battle lines were reinforced, the nations of Europe were left wide open to a different kind of invasion. Across the Atlantic, the United States was not only not being bombed to hell, but was positively thriving, and a few businessmen in the modest city of Los Angeles, California, were ready and willing to delight, or at least distract, 
any Continentals willing to pay import duties for a few hours of magic. Next time, we witness the beginning of the synonymizing of Hollywood and the movies, and look at what the French film industry managed to accomplish anyway while being crippled by a total war which kept as many bodies in mezzanine seats as it did in the ground. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Film. Thank you for your patience while I settled into my life as an academic. I hope to release these episodes as often as possible. And I also hope to release extra episodes, things that I thought were really interesting but I couldn't put in the show, interviews, or things like that. That is, unless, of course, people don't want that because I want this show to be valuable for you. So if you would like that, let me know. You can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. I don't have the website fully up and running right now, but I'm going to see about getting that back up very soon. And thank you so much to all of the people who have emailed me over the last two years. It's really meant a lot, and I'm so glad that the show continues to be useful for so many people around the world. I am deeply, deeply honored. Join me next time for another exciting episode of The History of Film.